Okay, we're going to study this morning the 19th chapter and 20th chapter of the book of the Revelation. Um, I want to introduce you to some thoughts that we do not typically uh, think about. Uh, I don't know, maybe you never have thought about some of these thoughts that we're going to uh, bring out this morning but you find it in the Bible you find it in the scriptures and one of the things that we learn from the book of Isaiah is that our thoughts are not God's thoughts and our ways are not his ways and so it shouldn't be thought a strange thing to discover that a lot of what the Lord teaches us here in His Word, we've never thought about before. And so that's one of the things that makes studying the Bible so exciting is because it's a revelation of things that we would otherwise never even think about. And so I'd like to bring you back to uh, the 19th chapter I know we were going into the 20th chapter the other week, but I'd like to bring you back to this because there's a thought that I've had in my mind for really a number of years that's uh, um, um, largely a result of, of what's said in Psalm 138 and verse 2. Uh, where the Lord said he had magnified his word even above his name. That's an amazing thought when you think about it. And I've told you this now on several occasions, but I'm going to need to repeat some of it to give a little bit more force to where I'm going to go today with these thoughts. Um, you do not know a person by their name. You know a person by their words. If people do not speak to you and reveal their inner being, then you cannot know them. And so... God tells us that our nature is to look on the outward appearance and, and judge a person on the basis of what we see on the external. But God looks on the heart, and that's an, ex, an, an example of how God's thoughts are not our thoughts and His ways are not our ways. He doesn't know you by what you look like. He doesn't know you by your name. He knows you by what's in your heart. He knows you by reason of his thought life. Now, listen to me carefully on this because there's a certain amount of progressive logic in what I'm going to say, and if you don't follow the logic, you won't get it. God existed in eternity past before he created any physical thing. And so the greater part of God is not physical. God showed up on planet Earth in a physical body. He was made in the likeness of men. And we beheld His glory, the glory of the only begotten Son of God. But He came to His own and His own received Him not. Why? Because looking on the external, you can't know a person. And so the challenge of the Lord Jesus, if we could even use that word, uh, was how could he prove who he was in his essence? Well... He had to do it by means of miracles, doing supernatural things. But the point is this. 
What is the greater part of our being in that we are made in the image of God? God created us in his image. So what do we know about God? Well, what we know about God is that he existed a long time before he took on himself flesh. And so the greater part of who we are is our thought life, is our spirit. And has been, has been said so often here in the church, when God breathed into Adam the breath of life, there was a corpse standing in front of him that he had made out of the dust of the ground. But he was dead. As much dead as a corpse in a casket when God created Adam. But then the Bible says that God breathed into him the breath of life and Adam became a living soul. The greater part of Adam's being was not his physical body made out of the dirt. When God created man in his image, he created us to be like him. Well, what is the greater part of God? Well, that's certainly not what he created. As a matter of fact, the warning of the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 1 was focusing on the created thing rather than the creator. The greater part of everything that God created is not his creation. It's the Spirit of God that is eternal in the past, and the same is true of you and me. When a person does die, we know and believe, because of the Word of God, that something leaves their body and continues to be very much conscious, very much alive. And it's the greater part of our being because God created us in His image and God is primarily spirit. He's not primarily physical. Everything in the Bible teaches this. But that is not the way we think. This is why we're so broken hearted when a loved one dies and we can't see them anymore. Their bodily presence is not with us anymore. And we just think of them as being dead and gone. But God's thoughts are not our thoughts, and His ways are not our ways, and they are not dead. And Paul believed this and taught this. And that's why he desired to depart, to depart as a person to be with the Lord. He believed that. He believed that there was a greater part to him than his physical body. And he had entered into that thinking so strongly, so powerfully, he actually had a desire to go into that dimension, that spirit world, rather than remain in the physical world. And he said, because it's far better. Do we think that way? No. Should we think that way? Yes. Paul did. But God's thoughts are not our thoughts, and His ways are not our ways. But that doesn't mean that His thoughts are not right, and His ways are not right. It means they are. And so we have the responsibility of being conformed to the way He thinks. Not the way we think, the way he thinks. The title of this message today is The Sword of Truth. You do not find that phrase technically in Scripture in the Old or New Testament. But it's contained in the passages that we're going to look at. The thought, the concept of the spirit of, of, of truth, the spirit, spirit of truth. Um, here in this passage, um, 
lot of these thoughts begin to emerge. And the reason I wanted to go into them again is because, again, these are things, these are ways of thinking that are not uh, typical. But uh, trying to go through life in our typical way rather than in God's typical way is a mistake. And we're going to miss out on a lot of what this book is teaching if we do not learn to think God's thoughts after Him. And so, in verse 12 it says, His eyes were a flame of fire, and on His head were many crowns, and He had a name written that no man knew but He Himself. Critically important. Okay, and that we're created in God's image. What is true concerning Jesus Christ is true concerning everybody we've ever known, including our own selves. We would not even know who we are, even though we know our name. You go up to somebody and say, you know your name? Yeah, I know my name. You think, are you crazy? But do you know yourself? And the truth is, people do not. And you cannot know who you are, really, without believing what God has to say about you. And that is that you're not good. No one is good. No one is righteous. God sees the spirit side of man's being. It's the most important thing. When he died on the cross, he didn't die to save our bodies. He died to save our soul, our spirit. But we don't think that way. This is why the disciples were really discouraged because Jesus Christ did not save their bodies from the Romans. This is why John the Baptist got so discouraged sitting in jail awaiting his beheading and sends a message to the Lord, Art thou he that should come or look we for another? I, I thought you, I mean, you're the Savior of the world. Come and save me. And the Lord didn't do it. He did not come and save him. And John the Baptist would very shortly find out that what the Lord did in delaying was far better for him. Paul talked about it. To depart and be with Christ is far better. John the Baptist had dropped back down into that humanistic way of thinking and putting the greater emphasis on his life, physical life, rather than spiritual truth. He was not thinking God's thoughts after him. And so the Lord sent the message back. You know, the blind see, the deaf hear, the lame are made able to walk, the dead are raised, and blessed is he that is not offended in me. And that's the way we need to be thinking. And so it tells us here in verse 12 that the Lord had a name written that no man knew but he himself. Well, the only way you can know it is by words. And that's why this Bible should be preferred by us over living in that generation that saw Jesus Christ. We have a more sure word of prophecy. Peter said that after saying that he and James and John saw the Lord transfigured on the holy mount. They saw it. But he said, you have a more sure word of prophecy. What is he talking about? He's talking about this right here. No man can really know Christ 
unless he reveals himself to that person by way of his word. Well, words are the essence of what it means to be a person. The essence of you and me is our thought life. The essence of who we are is not our physical body. It's not the way we look, and it's not our name. It's deeper than that, far deeper. As a matter of fact, a thought that you're going to have to accept whether it's strange to you or not is that you have existed in the mind of God for all eternity past. Now that's a huge thought if you think about it. But I don't think you can take the Bible and say it's not true. Because God doesn't learn anything. He's always known you. He knew you before you were born. Well, if He knew you before you were born, how long before you were born did He know you? I can tell you. I can tell you, and I don't think there's any doubt about it. He's known you for all eternity, past. And that's the truth. He told Jeremiah, if you want a scripture verse to support what you just heard, the Lord told Jeremiah in chapter, Jeremiah chapter 1, He said, Before I formed thee in the belly, I knew thee. And before thou camest forth from the womb, I ordained thee a prophet unto the nations. Okay. God's thoughts are not our thoughts. His ways are not our ways. But what do we learn by thinking His thoughts after Him? We learn that God knew Jeremiah before he was born. The next logical question is, how long before he was born? There isn't but one answer. Because God does not learn anything. He's always known everything there is to know. We have existed in the mind of God for all eternity past. And that's the truth. And we're going to exist for all eternity future somewhere if we think God sought after Him. There's no such thing as non-existence in the mind of God when it comes to you as a person. Whether it's eternity past or eternity future because we're made in His image and He is eternity past and He is eternity future. You, you learn these things in this book. This is what this book teaches. And so when a person dies... They do not cease to exist because they're created in the image of God and they're going to have to exist somewhere for all eternity. And that's why the Lord is pleading for us because He created us in His image and God is free. He has a free will. God has a free will. He created us in His image with a free will. So what is a free will? Well, a, a will is something you make choices with. And God has known for all eternity that the greatest threat His creation would ever face would be that of choices. And that we would have the freedom to choose to sin against Him. To go against God and exalt self above God. In other words, become lovers of selves more than lovers of God. And He knew that. But God is not at fault. 
for what we choose to do with our free will. He's absolutely innocent. But the world doesn't believe that he's innocent. The world does not believe that he's innocent. And that's why, if you'll turn with me to Romans, let's look at this and I'll show you an example. Uh, it's uh, Romans chapter 9. All of this has to do with free will and the, pre- the complexity of this thought and how dangerous it is to not think God's thoughts after him when it comes to this issue because what we're getting into here is predestination. Um, let's just begin reading... Um, Let's just begin reading at verse 6. Not as though the word of God had taken none effect, for they are not all Israel which are of Israel, neither because they are the seed of Abraham are they all children. But in Isaac shall thy seed be called. That is, they which are of the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God. Now, this is the external thing. This is focusing on the external. But the children of the promise are counted for the seed. So the Lord is talking about something spiritual here, the children of the promise, not the physical creation, um, the offspring of Abraham, but those that understand the spiritual truth concerning Abraham. Well, what was it that Abraham found? Let me just mention this to you. What hath Abraham found? Uh, he found that salvation is is in believing God without works. That's what he found. He realized that if it was of works, he would have a reason to glory before God. He didn't find a basis for it. And what Abraham found was, now listen carefully to this, what Abraham found was that he could never have the faith to go to heaven apart from God. He would have to have the faith that God has in himself to fulfill his promise to go to heaven. Huge difference. The faith of man and the faith of God are two entirely and distinct things. The faith of man always has an element of doubt. The faith of God has no element of doubt. And that's where the doctrine of eternal security comes from. Eternal security is no question, no doubt, this is going to be the future. Only God has faith with no element of doubt because he's God. And this is what Abraham found. Well, Paul is writing the Romans and he's essentially teaching what you just heard. He's teaching this. And he's talking about Abraham and Isaac um, and um, you know Isaac had two children Esau was the other one but Isaac was as a result of promise because God told him that he was going to have children even in his late age he was going to have children and, uh, and that came to pass according to the promise of God because there's no element of doubt in it. And it happened. 
But Esau illustrates the faith of man. That's what it it illustrates. And um, so... Um, let's read down here at, uh, I lost my place let's look down here at verse 11 for the children being not yet born neither having done any good or evil that the purpose of God according to election might stand not of works but of him that calleth it was said unto her the elder shall serve the younger as it is written Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. Now God anticipated that we would blame him for this. Because God in eternity past has always known the future. And so why didn't he stop it? And the reason he couldn't is because of free will. Free will is free will. You can't if you cha- change it into anything other than free will, then God becomes a dictator. He becomes a, a determiner of everything that's good and evil. And so blame is laid at the feet of God. And so the Apostle Paul anticipated that we would blame God for that. And so that's why you have verse 14. So look at it. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? He says, God forbid that you would think such a thought. God is not unrighteous. Because he knew before they would even be born that one would be the seed of promise and the other would be a type of the faith of man. Let me tell you something. Esau believed that everything was going to be just fine. According to his faith, according to his worldview, according to his belief, he believed that he was a good person. He didn't believe he was an evil person and going to go to hell. Neither does anybody in this town. The vast majority of people in this world are born believing that they are good. That is not God's thoughts. He says there's none good. We have to believe the Bible to know that's true. But The key here is verse 14 that says, What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? God forbid. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. Well, you read that and you say, Well, God's a respecter of persons. He's saying so right here. No, he's not. Listen to me. He's going to have compassion on those that believe him. He's not going to have compassion on those who do not. That's what is meant and not the other. And so Paul anticipates us blaming God because we're we're going to refuse to think after his thoughts. We're going to try to make God's word fit our way of thinking. Can't do that because his thoughts are not our thoughts. So it's a sin to try to force God's word to fit our faith and our way of thinking. That's a big mistake. Okay, so verse 15 says, For he saith to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. Well, how could it be otherwise? Should it be compassionate toward a cold-blooded killer? Should he be have compassion and show mercy toward somebody that is incorrigible and refuses to repent? Absolutely not. So God has predestinated being merciful and gracious to those 
whose hearts are broken. But He will not have mercy and grace toward those whose hearts are not broken. God cannot be nigh to a person that is a rebel against the Creator. He cannot be. And so God has predestined to bless those that do right. He has predestined the damnation of those who refuse to. And that's predestination. Predestination has to do with the promise of God which is blessing and eternal life to those that believe. God predestinates that if you do not believe His word of promise, you'll lose your soul forever. And He has predestinated that to be true. But that doesn't cause the person to believe or not believe because you have free will. What I'm telling you right now is a stumbling block to a many a soul in this world. And I've been one of them. But I'm not confused about it anymore. The Lord has, has explained these things in His Word. And all we have to do is believe it the way it's written. And He's anticipating that we're going to fault Him because of what He's saying here. And so that's why He says, Is there unrighteousness with God? God forbid. Don't you think that way? And then he goes on to say, look at verse 16. So then, it is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. In other words, it's not of works. It's God that shows mercy. For the scripture saith unto Pharaoh, even for this same purpose have I raised thee up, that I might show my power in thee, and that my name might be declared throughout all the earth. Well, what do you learn when you go back and you read about Pharaoh? Who is God that I should obey him? That's what you learn. He didn't care that there was a God in heaven. Look at verse 18. Therefore hath he mercy on whom he will have mercy, and whom he will he hardeneth. Okay, now when we read that statement that God hardens some people and doesn't harden others, Paul anticipates that we will fault God for that. Look at the next verse. Thou wilt say then unto me, Why doth he yet find fault? For who hath resisted his will? Do you see that, folks? So why and how did God harden Pharaoh's heart when he had a completely different relationship with Abraham? Well, it tells you in Romans chapter 4. Um, is, it, is it Romans 4 or is it Romans 2? Let me check it right quick. Uh, yeah, it's Romans 4. What shall we say then that Abraham our father as pertained to the flesh hath found? Well, what he found was that believing God is counted as righteousness. Well, what is believing God? It's believing the faith that God has in himself to do what he says and you not doubting it. That's eternal security. That's what Abraham found. In God's relationship with Abraham, Abraham believed God. Pharaoh didn't. And so, how did God harden Pharaoh's heart as a result? Because Pharaoh used his free will to say, I don't believe God. And so God withdrew his restraining Mercy and grace. He withdrew it. That resulted in it being hardened. But why did he withdraw it? Because Pharaoh says, who is the Lord? 
that I should obey him. I'm not going to obey him. He used his free will to say no to God. And God withdrew his restraint, which is the Holy Spirit, and allowed Pharaoh to have exactly what Pharaoh wanted. And that was to worship his self. He loved himself more than he loved God. And so Paul is anticipating in two distinct places in this passage, passage that we would fault God for his thoughts not being our thoughts. <laughs> and he says, is there unrighteousness with God? In verse 14, Paul says, God forbid. God is not unrighteous because Esau chose to sell his birthright. He's not unrighteous. Esau's to blame because he wanted a future blessing his way, not God's way, his way. And then when it comes to this situation with Pharaoh, why is it that Pharaoh would have a certain response toward God that would be in stark contrast to Abraham's response to God? Well, Abraham believed God. He believed in the faith that God had in himself to do what he said he would do. He believed it 100%. That is the foundation for the doctrine of eternal security. The doctrine of eternal security cannot be understood by trying to work up enough human faith to believe God with. You cannot do that. You'll never have eternal security with human faith because human faith has always has and will have an element of doubt. The faith that God has in himself has no element of doubt whatsoever. None. And so when we go back to, let's go back because this is, can be nothing more than a rabbit trail. Let's go back to Revelation chapter 19. The depth of these verses is uh, far beyond what our little minds are capable of of grasping. But they're written so that we might at least begin to go that direction of having God's thoughts replacing our thoughts and having his ways replacing our ways and putting a focus on where we need to put the focus and that is on the spirit side of our being which is far greater than the physical. Very important to understand that. And so when he said he had a name written that no man knew but he himself it's because the... Uh, The spirit of a man or the essence of any person cannot be known apart from revelation. It doesn't matter if it's your wife or your children or your best friend or whoever. You can think you know people and find out that you really didn't know them. One of the reasons it's difficult to know people is the Bible says all men are liars. How do you know that what somebody says about themselves is even true? We always in our relationship with other people try to embellish our, our person by talking about what we've accomplished or what we do. And we glory in ourselves. We just do. It's our nature. 
We don't go up to people and, and say, well, uh, to tell you the truth, I, I've been struggling a lot because I, I believe God. I'm a monster of iniquity. I'm deserving of the lake of fire. Uh, but by the grace of God, I'm saved. We don't usually begin conversations that way. We usually begin conversations by talking about positive things as it relates to us as a person. But that's because God's thoughts are not our thoughts. We need to get up every day of our life and refresh our minds every moment of every day that we possibly can of what we really deserve. And we deserve nothing but damnation. And that's the truth, according to the message of this book. There's not one thing that we have ever done or can do that will please God. Nothing. Without Him, we can do nothing. Without Him, there is none good. There's none righteous. There is no salvation apart from Him. We need to get up every day and remind ourselves of that, especially in our relationship with one another. Or we'll never love other people the way God loves us. We need to love one another. And it's not possible unless we remember every day that we're not better than anybody. We ought to be able to say like Paul, I'm the chief of sinners. That's what we ought to be able to say. We shouldn't compare ourselves among ourselves. The Bible says that's not wise. The measure of every man is Jesus Christ and His perfections. Well, how are we going to stand in the face of His perfections? Well, not very good. Not very good. Well, I've quoted to you this verse that's a favorite of mine. Um, I don't think it's wrong to repeat this, though I've said it several times, but I was off on a trip with Pastor Kelly years ago, and there have been a number of people that had come to me personally talking to me about uh, wondering if they were genuinely saved and want to know what I thought about it. What could I say to them that would provide some kind of comfort? So I was riding down the highway. Kent and I were on some trip somewhere, and uh, I said, Kent, how do you know that you have eternal life? And without any hesitation, he said, 1 John 5.20. And I've never forgotten it since that moment. 1 John 5.20. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us an understanding that we may know Him that is true. And we are in Him that is true, even in His Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. Wow. I'll never forget it, as long as I live. And with that one building block, the Lord has... Uh, directing my thoughts more in the direction of what that verse is actually saying. If you want to know that you have eternal life, one of the best ways of knowing that you have it is do you have an understanding? And we know, we know that the Son of God hath come and has given us an understanding. Okay, well, what is that? It's God's thoughts, which are not our thoughts. 
okay, if, if we have an understanding of his thoughts and it's not our thoughts, what does that equal? Let me tell you what it equals. Conversion. That's the key to conversion. When you live your life according to the understanding of this book, your life is going to radically change so that you're going a, t a totally different direction. The Lord said, I am the way. Well, which way were you going before you had the understanding? I'll tell you which way you're going. The same way I was going. You're going your way. As Frank Sinatra famously sang, I did it my way. That's the way to hell. That's not the song that needs to be your favorite. And so, um, look at um, look at Luke's gospel. Let's let's take a moment and look at look at this. Um, Luke chapter 1. Luke is, is, he's such a blessing, has been such a blessing in my life. Because he's talking about assurance of salvation as he's witnessing to Theophilus. And he's talking about the certainty of all these things. For as much, in verse 1, Luke chapter 1, verse 1, for as much as many have taken in hand to set forth in order a declaration of those things which are most surely believed among us, most surely believed, even as they delivered them unto us, which from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word, and we're talking about thousands upon thousands of testimonies that were saying the same thing. And that's what, how you are supposed to understand that. The power of eyewitness testimony. Now look at verse 3, because that's the one I want to focus on. It seemed good unto me, good to me also, having had what? Perfect understanding. Of all things from the very first to write unto thee in order most excellent Theophilus that thou mightest know the certainty of those things wherein thou hast been instructed. Folks, those are the most powerful words you will ever read. when it comes to your eternal soul and knowing whether or not you have eternal life. We know that the Son of God hath come and hath given us an understanding. And here is Luke writing Theophilus and saying, it seemed good to me also having had perfect understanding. Folks, how can we ever witness to anybody and expect them upon our invitation to come to Calvary Memorial Church if we don't have this right here? If we do not have an understanding ourselves so that we can sit down with somebody and explain to them uh, the difference between human faith and the faith that God has in Himself, how are we going to come across as somebody that knows what they're talking about. Um, we need boldness when it comes to the truth. And you can't have boldness when it comes to the truth if you don't know what you're talking about. And how can you know what you're talking about if you do not understand it? That's why it's so important to come to little meetings like this where we can come together and fellowship in God's thoughts.
And God solves. Okay, look at um, Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter 24. Um, you remember what this situation is here? It's where, you know, after the resurrection, resurrection, um, um, he was on the road to Emmaus and um, there were these people who were all sad because of what had just recently happened. And so the Lord is going along here with them and um, he expounds to them all the things concerning himself in the scriptures in verse 27. Um, and then, let's just begin reading at verse 42 because we're running out of time. And they gave him a piece of a broiled fish and of a honeycomb, and he took it and did eat before them. And he said unto them, these are the words which I spake unto you while I was yet with you, that all things must be fulfilled which are written in the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms concerning me. Now look at verse 45. Then opened he their understanding that they might understand the Scriptures. You see how many places there are in the Bible that will cause Pastor Kelly to say, without even any hesitation, I said, Kent, how do you know you're saved? He said, 1 John 5.20. Because God has given me an understanding. Folks, this is what is so precious about this church. We come in here and we study the Bible so that we can leave here with an understanding. Do you realize the power of that? The power of understanding anything. There's power in that. Uh, well, there are other things that we could we could look at, but let's... Um, Let's go back to Revelation chapter 19 and verse 15. Verse 15 says, Out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the fierceness of the wrath of Almighty God. I want to draw your attention to that statement there. Out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword. Now, the reason I gave you the things that we talked about at the first part of the message about the spirit side of our being being so much greater than the physical is because the way you understand this right here, let me give you this example. <clears throat> Have you ever seen these magicians that will take a spoon, they'll have somebody hold a spoon, and by the power of their mind, they will try to bend it. Have you ever seen anybody try to do that? Any of you? Have you? Have you? Yeah. Why would somebody try to do that? Let me tell you why. Because man wants to be like God without God's help. 
Because God, just by His Word, just by His thought life, created the physical universe as we know it. God could command the wind to stop blowing. God could walk on the water. All kinds of illusionists and magicians try to do that all the time. Why? Because they know what the Bible teaches, basically. They know that there's a spirit world, and there's power in that spirit world, and God, without any force whatsoever than His thoughts, could do anything with what He created. And man wants to do the same thing. He wants to do the same thing. Well, here in this verse, it says, Out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword. Well, listen to this, and I'll stop. Hebrews 4.12 For the Word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit, and of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. God is teaching us here that His thoughts are not our thoughts. And when it comes to the sword that we're familiar with, He has a sword that's sharper. And it's His Word. It's His Word. Listen to this one. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against rules of darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. Stand, therefore, having your loins girt about with what? A gun? A sword? No. Truth. Truth. And having on the breastplate of righteousness. Being right. About your thoughts in society. Second Corinthians chapter 10 says this. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down strongholds, casting down imaginations, what's that? Thoughts. And every high thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God. And bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. Folks, we're in a warfare today. And you know the most powerful weapon, according to the Word of God? The truth. It's the truth. It isn't a gun. Guns are not the problem, and guns are not the solution. You know what the solution is? It's what Brother Big Allen's been trying to get that Board of Education to understand. We need to get our kids out of the government schools and into a Christian school where they can hear the truth. What is it that's restraining the Antichrist and the new world order today. What is it that's restraining it? It's the Spirit of God in the believer. It's the Spirit of truth. Our time is way gone. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these moments that we've had. Bless the teaching of your word, for we ask it in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.